Atlas Shrugged Part 2. Now, we just gotta wait another year or so for Part 3, I suppose. I'm shrugging as well. (sighs) Sorry, I had to go there. (laughs) You've been saving that one. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so funny. Uh, yes. This is Movie Bite, a weekly show where we discuss, praise, lament, or lampoon movies, TV shows, culture, and more. This show is hosted by me, I'm TJ Draper, and I'm joined tonight again by my co-host, Joseph Darnell. Hey TJ, it's great to be back. It is good to have you back. How was jury duty? Ah, uh, it was long, drawn out, painful, and just boring. But it was it was fun at the same time. It was a fun kind of boring. You know, the first time you experience something can be boring, but you're also interested because you've never done it before. So that's where I kind of stood. Yeah, you'd never done jury duty before? Mm-mm. You? I, no, I have not. I've never been called. Uh, I've known people who have, but I, I haven't. So, uh, well, you know, I, I might be kind of interested on the one hand, but on the other hand, I'm not a big fan of our justice system right now. So uh, I don't know. Hmm. anyway that's interesting that almost sounds like you're trying to provide a segue into today's featured review (laughs) oh uh we'll get there in a few minutes i I really i really wasn't i really wasn't (laughs) but uh it just occurred to me what you were saying so um yeah let's let's talk about let's dive into our show here uh and I, i wanted to mention briefly the only thing that i personally have added to the show outline i'm sorry joseph i i mean to get to these things but it's just been Again, another tough week. So uh, I did want to mention briefly something I posted about earlier on Move Bite Today, and it just irritates me and irks me so greatly, and that is the whole um, Avengers versus Batman thing and the, uh, uh, what, what's his name, Fe- Feister? Is that how you say his name? <laughs> he might as well be pronounced that way. How is it? How is it pronounced? Fis- well, it's just, it sounds ironic, right, that his name would sound like it rhymes with feisty. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Uh, I just wow. Yeah, yeah. He definitely irked you uh, by reading your posts. I can see uh, the filmmaker coming out of you saying, "That's just not right. That's just not the way to be mm, to each other." Okay, so so here's the story. Uh, Wally Feister. I'm gonna go with P F I S T E R. He is uh, Christopher Nolan's director of photography from Memento through the Batman trilogy. No way. Oh, yeah. So he's been with Nolan for a while, and he recently, there was a big kerfuffle about this. uh, Because I really think, I mean, when you think about it, despite the fact that these two films really are, though they're superhero films, they're completely different from each other, and yet I think there's a lot of crossover uh, of people who like one like the other. And and so Wally uh, Feister says... Uh, what's really important is storytelling. None of it matters if it doesn't support the story. I thought The Avengers was an appalling film. They'd shoot from some odd angle, and I'd think, why is the camera there? Oh, I see, because they spent half a million on the set, and they have to show it off. It took me completely out of the movie. I was driven bonkers by that illogical form of storytelling. Now, I, Joseph, I am fired up about this, and you want to know why? Here's why. I really like the Batman trilogy. It is a great trilogy. It is well-directed, well-shot, sh- uh, uh, good cinematography, a good storytelling. I love the Batman trilogy. You know what else I like? I really like Joss Whedon's The Avengers. I thought that it was also really well-shot in a different way, but it was really well-shot, really well-executed, really better written than the Batman trilogy, frankly, because Joss Whedon, that's where he shines, is his writing. And just a great film. And you know what I want? I want these people to get along, and I want them to respect each other. I don't want them fighting and taking jabs at each other. And in fact, Joss Whedon uh, actually, let me look this up, he came out with a statement and said, well, I'm, you know, that's just, that's too bad, because I was a really, I, I am a really big fan of, and I thought, you know, that that's a man with some class. <laughs> so uh, here we go. Joss Whedon responds to cinematographer. Uh, When reached by Entertainment Weekly, the Avengers writer-director Joss Whedon responded, I'm sorry to hear about it. I'm a fan. And I wrote about that. Someone here has more class. Guess who looks like the better man? (laughs) Uh, You you know what's interesting, too, is that the filmmakers responsible for the Avengers, I think, would be very inappropriate to tell the Batman story. 
if you had uh, swapped the production studios and the directors, the writers, they, I don't think that they could have told the stories as effectively. Uh, Christopher Nolan would have taken the Avengers in a t- an entirely different light. You know, he, he his uh, cinematographer aside, I think that his um, his production studio would not have given them the quality that you the, just the the mystique that you expect from the Avengers. And, and vice versa. I think that Joss Whedon would be somewhat, um, well, in his own right, he'd be a little bit overkill for the Batman mythos. And so... I don't, um, I don't know about overkill, just maybe the wrong person to tell the story. Misappro- and I, yeah, misappropriate. And I would freely admit that. And that that's kind of my point, actually, is why are we arguing about this? The Avengers- You don't need every film to live up to the exact same standards of film quality. Yeah, I feel like they were both uh, good... Well, you know, the trilogy of Batman and the single film so far of The Avengers were both really good in their own ways. And you can't, I mean, taking pot shots at, at some, somebody else's film because, you know, for one thing, it, it feels like sour grapes because the Avengers made a lot more money than the most recent Batman film, quite a bit more. And mm. that just feels like sour grapes to me. And he's just going, well, see, my film was better. My <laughs> film was better. And I don't like it. And, and I, I can't, I mean, the, the cinematography was bad. I mean, that's what it sounds like to me. Is just just finding a being being stupid. That's what it is. <laughs> Tell us how we how you really feel. <laughs> I will. I I certainly will. Um, you, you you know if you wanted to have a spinoff of our podcast to have another show where you just talk about your feelings about the Avengers and the Batman series, you go right ahead. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I, I'll I'll think about that because I you know I'll really think about that. All right, so moving on. Um, yeah, so Steven Spielberg and John Williams composing E.T. together. You posted this video on our site. I did. And I love it. It's, uh, it's just, oh, wow. Because it's not very often that you see cl- uh, a, a, uh, an, an oldie, you know, by, by my generation's standards, being uh, made. Original footage, behind the scenes. Here's a young Spielberg and a much younger John Williams hammering it out together at yes. the piano and with a film reel watching the scenes replaying the scenes of et yeah now while we'll, williams is working on the soundtrack yes now now for our uh, our listeners here um what we're talking about is a video that i posted earlier uh on wednesday october the 24th um and it was it, it's a video as we've been explaining of um steven spielberg and john williams writing the music for et <clears throat> And you will find, uh, I'll put the link for this in the show notes. The show notes uh, for this episode can be found at moviebyte.com slash mbpodcast slash 15. That's where you'll find the show notes. And so really, you really should check this video out. It really is amazing, despite the, fi- uh, despite the fact that I am not John Williams' biggest fan. This, this was a really neat video to watch if for no other reason than to see that film projector and them you know playing the film projector and then they got to back it up to get to a certain spot it's just fun very yeah the room they're in it obviously appears like uh well it doesn't remind me of a studio it's like a completely different atmosphere from what you would expect them to be working in today yeah it it looks like they're in somebody's home to me I'm, i'm pretty sure that's where they're at um, and, 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 and you know, I just what I love about this is that both Spielberg and Williams didn't know yet what a success that ET would be. They didn't realize that they were making one of the best soundtracks of all time together. And and you're and you're seeing them unfold something. I mean, for all we know, they they uh, this point and shoot camera deal where somebody was recording them. We don't see who the cameraman was. We, we don't even know what their intent was with this clip. It's, a, it's such a rare op- opportunity because back in those days, the, the filmmakers weren't frequently making making of special videos um, f- uh, promoting their, their theatrical releases. Yeah. So it's remarkable that this clip even exists. Yes, it is. Because so, so few films have um, any uh, footage to show of their backstory from this era. Yeah, it, it, it's definitely fun in that way. Um, and, and, you know, I, I, I'm pretty sure it was Spielberg. I, I read somewhere a couple of years ago that um, 
I'm pretty sure it was Spielberg. He is one of the, he was one of the last holdouts for editing in a uh, linear fashion with film. He he uh, if it was him, and I'm pretty sure it was, and I, uh, I he was one of those guys who uh, said there uh, there's there's something about the film and 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 the smell of it and the cutting room and just you know. And he was one of the last holdouts. I think now he had his last, his most recent film. He did edit uh, in a non-linearly, digitally. But I, you know, that just kind of shows you what era this guy's coming from. <laughs> yeah, you're right. I, I can't imagine working with a film reel like that. It, it's so oh, foreign to me. I want to so badly. I, 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 you know, we've mentioned a few times. I'm a filmmaker. I make documentaries and promos and different things. And unfortunately. Uh, uh, everything I've ever made has been all digital. Like we shoot it digitally, we edit it digitally, we output it digitally. Uh, I've never actually handled film, and it's kind of sad to me. I really want to. I want to shoot something on super thirty-five millimeter film. That would be so mm. fun. It's going to be a lost art before too long. And and you know it's really sad because frankly, super thirty-five is still a superior quality to anything we can do digitally. Are you so sure about that? I am, how, 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 would you, how would you know so? I am 100% positive um, because I read a lot and because I know people who <laughs> shoot on Super 35 and because so there's just, there's a quality. Okay, and think about this too. Uh, first of all, let me say this. There's a quality to Super 35 that you just can't get digitally. Um, there's a way that the lighting works when it passes and, and hits the film. Um, there's just... Uh, a different look and feel and movies that are shot digitally have a harsher, more grittiness to them, even if it's subtle. All right. So there's that. Now also think about all these films and TV shows that used to be shot on super 35 that are being remastered uh, into HD. They can scan those old prints and get HD quality out of them. And they haven't even, they, they could go higher. Like they're do, just doing 1280 by 720. You can get, you can scan these things into 4K and get really great resolution. And the film holds up. And, you know, all the stuff that's now being shot digitally, it's only ever going to be what it was shot at. I'm, I know I'm getting techie here and I'll stop in a minute. But if you shoot something no, it's at interesting. 1920 by 1080 digitally, that's all it will ever be is 1920 by 1080. It is what it is. And with film, you don't have that limitation because there's so much there. It is such a high quality. Um, I remember reading about the decision to shoot the most recent Star Trek film on Super 35 millimeter film. Uh, and, uh, you know, they talked about the merits of going digital and ultimately they decided you know what, it just, we're, you know, it's going to cost us more. We're going to do this on film because we want the superior quality and we want the look of film. You know, some of the guys, you know, some of the guys behind the Star Trek films are just brilliant filmmakers. They, they really care about their craft and they're thinking long-term because I think that they're heavily influenced by their history that they have been making these Star Trek films and television shows for such a long time that they can really appreciate where this is all going, that they want to maintain their film legacy. So they want to be able to uh, maintain the old films for the next generation, whatever that digital or new media implementation is. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, I'll just mention briefly that uh, the remastering, I mentioned it before, the remastering Star Trek The Next Generation, a TV show, it was shot on 35mm film, and it, it looks, the remastered stuff looks incredible. Uh, you know, if, if you've ever, if you're a fan of The Next Generation like me and you've owned the DVDs, you know how cruddy it looked. Uh, because back in the days when it was composited and done in 1987 and on, the technology just wasn't good enough uh, it, without spending lots and lots of money like you would on a feature film to make it look that good. And so now that it's being remastered and recomposited, um, you know, all the effects are being recomposited and everything, it looks incredible. And the reason they're able to do that is because they shot it on film. So hmm. I'll, I will get off my soapbox. But you should really go watch this, this uh, video, uh, really, of... Steven Spielberg and John Williams composing this music. It, it's really a fun look kind of behind the scenes. And they're, you know, they're talking about uh, how they're going to make the music affect you here and, and this sort of thing. It was a lot of fun. And, and you know, too, that it seems here Steven is actually conveying some ideas to Williams for the first time where he is asking him to 
go up on a higher note than a lower note at a particular point. Yeah. And I mean, that's, that's something in the making there. It's not like they're just sitting there and saying, Hey, listen to this awesome little ditty we came up with earlier today. No, no. Yeah. Definitely. You know, they're actually hammering it out in the video. So that's why it's just so, so rare to yep. see something like this. Yeah. It's a lot of fun. All right. And then we need to move on to the last item uh, before we get to our main topic, which is the Skyfall trailer. And uh, you wanted to ask me a little bit about this. Okay, so Skyfall came out with this uh, very full-featured uh, trailer. It's not a, a teaser trailer by any stretch of the imagination. Um, getting uh, people excited for this new film out in November. It is November, right? That's I think we question. asked this question in the last episode we did together. But uh, Skyfall, so it's the third installment with Daniel Craig starring him. Uh, Quantum of Solace, it just totally tanked. I can't think of anyone who liked it much at all. Like, everyone disliked that film. As for Casino Royale, there was a mixed audience that some liked it, some loved it, some some hated it, some just didn't like it. And I was one of those people who liked it, can't say I loved it, but I've really enjoyed watching it many times over. I've grown to appreciate it for some of its um, eccentricities, the, the qualities that make it unique. And now I'm really hoping that with uh, Skyfall, they're getting their act together and getting themselves back on track because, well, Daniel is getting older, and I don't know if he's going to entertain the idea of a fourth installment, although it should be tempting to him, and I'm sure they could afford him because uh, the Bond series is such a huge franchise. A few uh, films back, they were uh, struggling to make uh, the budget because the uh, studio was not able to, to afford a big production like James Bond. And I think it was uh, bought out by another studio. I can't remember what those were. But, um, okay, so Skyfall, the trailer, it looks really entertaining. I mean, like... It does. And, and, wow. and here's here's where I'm at with Bond is I just recently watched Casino Royale and I guess I should say historically I just haven't been interested in Bond I can't tell you why I just it just never has interested me any of the previous films uh, you know Pierce Brosnan uh, Sean Connery uh, who's some of the others that have played Bond um, mm, you know just, if you're not an avid you know Bond fanatic then they're really not mentionable to be honest. Okay. So those are the two main ones. Obviously, everybody everybody knows that Sean Connery would played Bond, and everyone knows that Pierce Brosnan has played Bond. But um, I've just never been interested. Uh, they just never looked interesting to me. And uh, so I finally, with Skyfall coming out, and I've actually been watching the trailers and the sneak peeks and the teasers as they come, and I've been thinking, man, that does look really cool. I should check out the first two films before this one comes out. And so I watched Casino Royale this past weekend. Uh, I believe it was Saturday night or something. And it wasn't that great. It, 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 you know, it wasn't horrible, but it wasn't great. It just, it was just a little bit of a snoozer at times. And sometimes it seemed like the act, you know, it was either you were either snoozing or the action was going and, and wouldn't stop. And you're like, okay, what, what's going on now? You know? And so that was kind of how I felt about Casino Royale. I'm hoping to watch Quantum of Solace soon, but you're not giving me much hope for it. Well, you know, something that's, um, unique to watch about the bond franchise is that they are british in nature obviously um but but that's the thing they're really not much like most british films they're not very much like british television either the the british they like to be more intellectual they like <laughs> to be very they like to be very sober and they oftentimes like to contradict the norm they it, they don't need a happy a happy ending they don't need a traditional hero that gets what he wants mm. they don't need a traditional good guy who is someone you would admire and here you have a character that you know it's a it's a mixture of things where i feel like the daniel craig bond films and much like the pierce brosnan series they they definitely strike you as british in some regards, coupled to Hollywood. It's like the marriage of the American and European arts. It's not very often you see this, where it, where there's a good mixture of both of their sets of qualities. And I think that the Casino Royale was, in many ways, it was the guinea pig for a whole new uh, a collection of filmmakers. You know, uh, 
I imagine there's got to be some people that worked on the Pierce Brosnan James Bond films that carried over to Daniel Craig's James Bond films. But from my understanding, the, uh, these are mostly new filmmakers that came to this 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 particular franchise. Yeah, well, and it was definitely a reboot. You know, they started from the beginning, ignored all the previous films, and said, "Here we go." You know, this is this is a new Bond. This is not like the old Bond. Yeah, so. in many ways, they told his origin story, and no other filmmaker had cared to do that before. And I and I can see why they they got into the habit of ignoring it. Yeah. Yeah, and and so you know, I'm I'm definitely interested in Skyfall. It looks pretty good, um, and I I certainly hope it's a better film than Casino Royale was. It sounds like you hope it's a better film than Quantum of Solace was. Oh, definitely. <laughs> uh, you know the villain. Um, they actually show a good deal of the villain in the, in this trailer, and I think he's very British, but at the same time. I kind of wondered if they had taken a little bit of inspiration from the Joker in the Dark Knight. <laughs> uh, the, I, I, I'm I'm really intrigued by that. Yeah, I mean, the, the, definitely the kind of uh, that that sort of sarcastic humor. You know, something. What was it? He says she sent you out to find me, uh, knowing you weren't ready. Mommy was very bad. You know, <laughs> I'm sorry, I do a terrible <laughs> yeah. accent, but uh, um, yeah, it, it's it's definitely interesting. Uh, direction that they're going so i'll definitely be interested to see that um you know oh oh, i wanted to say this about casino royale since i just saw it and we're talking about bond it seemed very predictable to me and i I hope that skyfall is not as predictable um because i figured out you can ask my wife i actually said this as we were both of us were watching it for the first time not knowing literally not knowing anything about it really uh and i said like not long after we met vesper i said she's not she's not going to turn out to be a good guy. <laughs> and I was completely and totally right. <laughs> well, I, I guess I was mostly right. Cause it turns out she was kind of a conflicted character, not, an, so, not an out and out evil person, but she was, it was very predictable to me that she was going to betray bond. Well, what did your wife think? She, she, uh, as soon as I said it, she goes, Oh yeah, I think you're right. Now that you say that. So, huh? See, I saw it in theaters and, you know, I wasn't uh, talking with the people I was with in the theater discussing it and what we thought, but left to my own devices. Uh, I just, uh, I really enjoyed Vesper's character and it didn't occur to me that she would, I, I, I saw that she was a character with some conflict there and she was wrestling with some personal issues, but mm-hmm. I, it didn't occur to me that she'd actually betray him. Well, there you go. Well, as it turns out, I was a little bit wrong. I should amend because she was a, she didn't want to betray him, but she felt like she had to. So it wasn't like she was in it all for the money, like I thought she might be. So anyway, uh, Skyfall comes out November 9th. Uh, check out the trailer. The link will be in the show notes uh, to view the trailer, and it does look pretty good. So mm. uh, here's, here's to hoping, November 9th. And we'll, of course, be talking about that film on one of our upcoming episodes as soon as it comes out. Okay, so TJ, I'm ready to talk about our main topic. Atlas Shrugged. I think we should, uh, before we talk about part two, I think we should talk about part one. I think we have to. Um, Okay, well, don't you want to give people the bigger picture first? You know, just kind of introduce them to, I don't know, the general story and its plot. I feel like like there's still a lot of people that don't know what this is about. (laughs) I mean, like, we can't just say, ah, we liked part one, or no, we didn't, you know, without telling them what this is about. I definitely want to talk about the bigger picture. Um, but I, I do feel like we have to set it up before we talk about part two, because this is a, a three-part story. Is that correct? It's going to be three parts? It's certainly going to be more than two parts. Uh, uh, at least ways. Assuming that the filmmakers find it in their heart to be uh, charitable once more. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and I should, speaking of which, I should look up some stats on the first one as we get going. But why don't, why don't you go ahead and give some uh, the folks uh, some... Yeah, I'll give you the brief stuff. on this, people. Um, okay, so here's the deal. Atlas Shrugged, it's a really old book. It was written or published in 57 by Ayn Rand. She was Russian, Russian raised, and she eventually moved westward and uh, found herself in America. And she uh, took a, borrowed a lot of ideas that she, you know, picked up from across cultures. And when she came to America, she came up with this story called Atlas Shrugged, and it became a huge hit. A political thriller of sorts for its day. But it's a huge book. It's over a thousand pages long. And a lot of people are far more familiar with this book than I am. But uh, we're going to try and talk about those things that we do understand and we do appreciate about this uh, film series. 
and those today. that we don't. Yeah, we'll we'll allude to them. All right. Well, we won't we won't lie to you. Okay, so here is the the storyline for part two, which has a lot to do with part one. So I think it'll give you at least an idea of where we've come from. Uh, the global economy is on the brink of collapse, and unemployment has risen to twenty four percent, leastways in America. But it's implied it's a, it's a big global thing. And then the gas is now twenty two sorry forty two dollars a gallon. You know, so basically nobody's got gasoline. And uh, the brilliant creators uh, out there in society, from artists to industrialists, uh, they can are continuously, mysteriously disappearing, vanishing from society. And they're just disappearing from society. They're just gone. Any of these contributors to, to society that make culture great. And uh, nobody knows why. So Dagny Taggart, she's a, uh, a young woman, vice president in charge of operations for Taggart Transcontinental. And she has discovered uh, what may very well be the answer to the mounting energy crisis found abandoned among the ruins of what once was a productive factory, a revolutionary motor, this uh, motor, this engine thing could possibly create power out of static electricity in the air around it all on its own collecting static electricity, which is otherwise impossible uh, that people think today, but, um, Still, that's the premise about this motor. Um, but the thing is, is this motor that Dagny's got, is, it's not working. And so she's left to figure out its secrets to find someone who can get this thing running. And uh, it's a, she's in a race against the clock to find the inv- an inventor or a scientist who can get this thing running again before basically the culture collapse in the United States. Yeah, and, and along the way, there's this great big shrouded mystery, this uh, thing that people keep saying, who is John Galt? Who is John Galt? I still want to know. <laughs> I, I don't I don't care anymore. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Um, okay, so, um, and this, this is part two. This is part two of a, what is this, uh, presumably a three-part story. And so I watched part one recently. It's been a little while since you've watched it. Is that right? Yeah, I saw it about a year ago. You liked part one, uh, you think, better than I did. Uh, I, I wanted to like part one. Um, it, it, it was a bit of a snoozer. It was a bit of a, a plastic acting, I felt like. Um, and so uh, I, I didn't have a lot of high expectations going into part two. And uh, maybe, again, maybe it's the power of low expectations. I found part two to be much more satisfying in many ways. Um, well, my part two, uh, well, sorry, my uh, part one uh, impression of part one is that it was better than what I was expecting the day I saw it. And uh, uh, at the same time, I, I felt uh, the production qualities were very poor, but it was understandable given the uh, incredible budget constraints they had. Yeah. Now, Atlas Shrugged part one had a budget of $20 million, which for a film like this is not a lot, really. Um and 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 here's the thing: it has only made so far four million six hundred and twenty-seven thousand dollars. So it's amazing that they even made part two, uh, because it, they're they're they've come nowhere close to making back the money from the budget. Not nowhere near it. Um, and and uh, it's just not that great of a movie. And in fact, I found on part one that it got better maybe as it went even. Uh, like at at first, I felt like some of the uh, shots, some of the um, acting, some of the uh, CGI was just off-putting and just not working very well. And as the movie went on, it seemed to pick up some steam and do better. But I totally agree. Overall, it just didn't feel like a great film. It, it felt very much like a somewhat poorly made indie film. It definitely made me, though, very interested in its overarching story. Um, I wanted to see the next installment Agreed. after watching part one. Agreed. I also took a great interest in the novel, although it's in my queue. I haven't read it. It's a mm. huge. So, I mean, when am I going to find the time? But uh, part one, I also liked some of the faces, although I didn't feel that like they were handed a very good script. 
considering no. that it was groundbreaking that they had incredible constraints like i mean because it's got a lot of political conservative themes and that just doesn't fly in hollywood yeah it doesn't fly and therefore a lot of hollywood um professionals would not help them in this project i think that they were able to pull off something that was impressive considering their limitations so yeah. for me i cut them a little slack because i'm kind of like wow you you pulled it off you pulled off more than i was expecting when i heard just how much it was derided by audiences and critics alike i i figured well it can't be all that great and then when i saw it it was only because someone else i know believed in it so much it was like oh come on you gotta see this and so i did and then i was like okay wow I, i'm okay with this yeah. Now, um, according to Rotten Tomatoes, the um, average, uh, the the tomato meter shows from the critics that uh, forty did not like it. Forty thought it was rotten, and five found it fresh. So eleven percent only, eleven percent liked it. And uh, most of the reviews that I've seen, I've just skimmed a few things, and obviously they're tearing apart the political philosophies in this film. Uh, now, of the audience who have seen it, um, user ratings, there's fifteen thousand four hundred twelve ratings, seventy three percent liked it so i find that somewhat interesting um and and certainly certainly i as a uh, i'm just gonna say it right here in the show i'm sorry if you're i don't want to i don't want to scare anybody off uh if you're of a different persuasion listening to the show we want you to stay but i am a conservative i'm a political conservative and i really liked some of the stuff that was going on in this film like i could identify and i'm sitting there going yeah that's that's right and yeah that's exactly what would have what where we're headed sort of thing um and uh, why why capitalism actually is a good thing, and why we you know we could get into why we haven't had capitalism in years, but not really. But you know, try not to get this is a political film. We'll try not to get too political. But uh, yeah. So well, uh, while we're talking about the uh, the political nature of the film, perhaps uh, it is uh, important to note that um, I don't believe that the films or the book that is that they're based on are trying to say that all capitalists are good guys. No, no, and, no, and not I don't at think all. That they're, yeah, and I don't think they're trying to say by it that these are, um, these are perfect people, that they're, that, um, you know, the, you know, that which is transcendently good is exclusive to, you know, conservatives. That's not what the film and the story are trying to say at all. No. But it does seem that a lot of people are quick to judge the story and think that that's what is being proposed. Sure. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sorry, you're not giving the movie a chance if you think that. And you, you got to set aside your own uh, persuasion because, you know, after all, I, hey, I'm, I'm conservative too, but I don't agree with all the, uh, the uh, themes in this film either. Um, but that being said, I'm looking for other qualities to appreciate out of this trilogy. Uh, you know, it's got some entertainment value. It should be telling a very compelling story. Obviously, it's been one of the most renowned stories uh, in American culture. So I have very high regard for the film and what it's based after. And I kind of, I kind of hope that it, uh, it lives up to its acclaim, at least ways the acclaim of the books, the book. Yeah. Um, yeah, so part one, and, and here's here's what's interesting. Um, part one is acted out and played by completely different actors than part two. And, <laughs> <clears throat> excuse me, this is very off-putting to me when going in, after having just seen part one, and you go into part two, and ultimately, while I found part two to be a better film, uh, and I found the acting to be better uh, still, there's just something about changing actors and actresses that just is really off-putting to me. It just, ugh. Um, <laughs> even though, and especially, I felt like Dagny, the the actress who played Dagny in part two, who was, uh, oh no, I've lost it here. Here we go. All right, so in part, in part one, it was um, Taylor Schilling. In oh, yeah. part two, it was Samantha Mathis. And I, I found the performance of Dagny in part two to be much, much better. Well, that's uh, that's another way that you and I disagree because, on the whole, I preferred the uh, the performance in the first film. Hmm. So, well, but see, that's what I think is quite intriguing, though, about these two films is that they have different directors, they have um, similar or they have some corollary because they have the same producers, 
but they have this all new cast. They have a completely different kind of budget quality. So then people are getting uh, different perceptions of these oh. two films. Like, like me, there are others that believe that ultimately the first film worked a little bit better and vice versa. So I don't think the budget it's not very was, often that happens. The budget wasn't too different, though. Uh, Th- just that's a, the thing. Just a few it actually more. isn't. It, it, it actually isn't that much more. So let, let, uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, Atlas Shrugged Part 2 was just released uh, October 12th, uh, very recently, uh, to 1,012-ish screens, budget of estimated $25 million, and it has only made back 2857000 so not doing so well. Um, <laughs> but, you know, did you even know about this film three weeks ago? Um, I did, but just somewhere in the back of my head. Now, four or five weeks ago, no. <laughs> ah, okay. See, so, you now the thing was, I heard about the making of this film about a year ago, and I had no clue that it was coming out in 2012. Just a week ago, I had not heard of it. I had not seen any trailers, no promotions on the internet. So when it was announced, hey, Alice Rugg just premiered, I was like, what? Are you serious? Um, so that was kind of unnerving to me, like, um, no, no anticipation, no build up there. And that kind of told me a little bit about the film going into it. I found out afterward that the producers were inclined not to share, uh, any like pre-releases for the, uh, the media and for critics alike, because they didn't want them to jump on the film and, uh, deride it ahead of time. They wanted to give audiences the chance to see it. Whether, you know, whether just, you know, a little bit more objectively see it for what they thought it was worth. Um, So critics were seeing it along with audiences at the same time, which I thought was interesting. So what did you think, man? That, that, that is an interesting thing. I mean, because a lot of times critics will get early access and be able to put up the reviews. And I, I, I think ultimately this probably the reason they didn't is because they know that the critics are going to rate it poorly. Even even I would say, even if it was a very well-made film with huge amounts of budget, um, it's going to be received very poorly by the critics. And they're not going to talk well about it because it is such a conservative uh, viewpoint. And as, as we all know, Hollywood is a very liberal place. That, that would be my impression. Yeah, yeah, I, uh, I think you're you're right on there. <laughs> so, so giving giving critics early access, I, I think, serves no purpose for for them. I think is is what's going on. So, so did we already mention what the rating has been from general audiences and the like? Uh, I did for from, part two. Uh, from oh, for part two, I don't know if I did for part two. Um, yeah, the, the the tallies are that it's getting a five point five on IMDb and an average of a uh, uh, seventy nine on Rotten Tomatoes, yeah. which is a four out of five stars from the audience. Yeah, you, you got to like imagine you, that a lot of people who are going to see this are predisposed to like it because of its viewpoint. Right. Yeah. If if you're not inclined to watch this film, it's probably because you're a liberal or you didn't know about it in the first place. So people who are willing to go out on a limb to give it a try, seeing as how so little was known about this film a week ago, and then to rate it on IMDb or Rotten Tomatoes. Those people are probably uh, Ayn Rand fans or people that liked the first film for what it was. Or I think that there could be just some people out there that are curious about a political film at a time like this during the presidential election season. Sure, yeah. But but again, it's, it's not doing very well in theater. <laughs> so... Um... Yeah, and, and and on the one hand, uh, it is kind of sad because it's not that bad of a film. Like I, th- this this film, if if I were rating it, if I were reviewing it, which you're going to be writing the official review for Movie Bite, but if I were, um, I would probably give it no, oh, maybe three stars, somewhere around there. Do you care to share what you're going to rate it? Uh, sure. Yeah, I, I would give it two out of five. And I, I don't mean to be brutal, but I, I have my reasons and I will thoroughly explain them in uh, my review. But the ultimate reason this film doesn't meet par uh, to me is because they have um, learned from the second film what worked and what didn't work. Then they had a bigger budget. And yet I saw that they made some of the same mistakes and then they created new ones. And I thought to myself, you know what? They could have made a better film than this. You know, I'm, I was cutting the first film some slack because it was a, a huge undertaking. They already, uh, they, it was the first go at it. You know, they, they knew they weren't going to get Hollywood's help. Then they, uh, they had the budget constraints and, 
they had um, a fairly a fairly decent cast, but they were just dealing with a difficult screenplay where they were trying to boil down a 1,000-page story to three installments, not knowing what the script for parts two and three would be like. They had to um, do as much justice as they could to the first installment. And I, I just thought that what they accomplished with part one was, um, on the whole, more impressive. Do you, do you care to share what kind of mistakes you are referring to and, and the things that irritated you about part two? Uh, I, I do. I do care to talk about that. <laughs> Did you want to highlight any of your um, dislikes at first? Uh, I, I suspect that you're going to have more likes than you will have dislikes. Uh, no, that's not actually correct. Um, I, I felt like there was definitely some weaknesses, even with a budget of $25 million, there were some weaknesses in um, some of the uh, uh, shots and, and effects. Let, let me give you an example. Uh, as as a filmmaker, editor, and uh, know a little bit about graphics and After Effects, um, I can tell you there's a specific shot in the film. The first time we go into the um, hotel, uh, and we're kind of the the there's a there's a shot that where you're moving up the hallway with a steady cam, and you turn towards the conference room door, and obviously they're trying to simulate you going through the closed door. Like you you see this technique all the time. The camera kind of pushes through the closed door and the yeah, door kind of perhaps and perhaps while they the camera is making this uh push in towards the door you hear a conversation unfolding that is uh from characters already on the other side of that door you're just approaching them and uh, you hear the conversation already started exactly that's the sort of thing we're talking about and the door will kind of dissolve around the camera and then you'll be in the room well here what they did is they they're trying to accomplish the shot and they pushed up to the door, and then they cross-dissolved, and you're in the room. And you're still moving, the camera's still moving, but it was very obvious it was just a cross-dissolve. And I kid you not, not being a graphics genius, just having a little bit of experience with, with graphical things and with After Effects, Adobe After Effects, I could have fixed that and made it seem real in five minutes. <laughs> and it would have been much better for it. So that's the sort of thing that there's just no excuse for. Te- and I know that's a technical thing, but there's just no excuse for it. Um, well, TJ, you should offer your services for part three, the production. <laughs> I suppose. I'm sure that they could, uh, well, I mean, as long as you're willing to do it as an act of charity, <laughs> they can afford you. Yeah. Well, <laughs> anyway, so so that was that was a little irritating. Um, I, I felt like, uh, I guess I have, I, I understand where you're coming from with the actress that played Dagny in part two. My 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 complaint with her in part one was that she was too wooden, too hard to approach, too hard to get into her mind. Like she was always a businesswoman, and even when she was alone, she never lowered her shield, so to speak. Uh, and I'm using Star Trek phraseology here, but she never let us inside as the audience. Even when she was alone and nobody else is with her, she was all business, all businesswoman, no emotions, nothing. It's it just I, like. Uh, let me tell you why I like that, though. I, that was something that I actually appreciated about Dagny in the first film for two reasons. One, I watched a lot of the uh, old Superman cartoons when I was a kid. The stuff that was made by, uh, what was his name, Max Flesher? The guy who did the stuff in the 30s and the 40s. Read a lot of the old Batman comic strips from the 50s. And as a child, I could appreciate a true black and white character. You know, someone who just uh, stuck to their guns and did what was right, a, 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 an archetype, someone who just was the paragon of virtue, the you know the beacon of light throughout the entire story, and you know that's not very often we see that in films today. I, I can appreciate complex characters, but sometimes I just need a little bit of relief. It's something that struck me about what Clark uh, Douglas said in his um, uh, uh, discussion with you last week on the, the last episode of Movie Bite. He pointed out that, you know, a gritty, grungy, serious, sober action film can be a very compelling and fun film, and it's something that you enjoy. It's very modern. It's the way that action films are often told these days. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, it seems like it's almost become gimmicky, and it's also overused. And so he is a little bit tired of seeing a lot of gritty films. And uh, I'd have to kind of agree in the same regards as it pertains to characters and how they are told. I like uh, something where 
uh, you tell a character who is just true to a particular code of ethics. And that, that, that's where I'm coming from. But then when I found out how Atlas Shrugged tells its story in the novel, I found out that actually this is a better portrayal of what Dagny was in the book, mm. that she was this uh, staunch person who, her, whose, whose emotions never flinched. Uh, she, she always stuck to her guns. And, and, and you know what? Because that's how she was in the story, the, well, the book, I kind of thought to myself, well, you know what? I respect them for that. It, they, they, took the, uh, they, they took the road less challenged for modern filmmaking. Yeah, I mean, I see where you're coming from. I, I just feel like the audience needs to relate to her a little bit better, and I didn't like her as much as I wanted to in the first film. And she's our she's our protagonist, so we've got to like her. And yeah, she was, and, and like I said, it, 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 she won't be as relatable for general audiences. And she she was much more. I felt like the balance was much better, even if it was weighted a little too far the other way. I liked it better in in the second film. Um, so that was one of the things I actually did like. But but again, I would share I would share your concern or. Uh, whatever word you want to use there, uh, that that it was weighted a little too far the other way. I I, mm-hmm. I would I could see that. I I would just say it was my personal disappointment coming out. Um, I was actually su- pleasantly surprised. A great number of the uh, reviews I've read online, people were uh, very pleased with the acting from part two. They were especially uh, impressed by uh, the new cast members playing, you know, Mathis playing Dagny and. Uh, in two or three of the other very significant central roles, they they thought that their performances were better than part one. So and I, w- I may be the odd one out here. Yeah, I, I would definitely agree with that perspective. Here's here's something else from part one that really just I, I just sat wrong with me, and I couldn't put my finger on it right away, but I finally did. All these people were way too young to be in the positions they were in. It takes many years uh, to get to this businesswoman status that Dagny was at, and she just felt way too young in the first film. And 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 Mathis, I think, pulled this off better. She was, you know, I suppose a little older. I haven't really looked. But she certainly seemed to be more mature. And that worked better for me. And the same thing with uh, Reardon, you know, frankly. Yeah, Jason Beg Bay. B e g h e Bay. I don't know. Beg, Beggy, Biggy. <laughs> Yeah, but don't tell Samantha Mathis that you liked her performance because she was older. <laughs> no, that, that's not what I mean. I, I and, and that's why I changed the word more mature. Uh, I don't know that she's older. Yeah, um, yeah mature is the, is the truth. Um, it, 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 she just seemed more of a businesswoman's stature to me to to be able to to do the things that she was doing, and and it just and like I said, the the performances felt wooden, plasticky in the first film, and did not hear whatsoever. There there was, despite whatever you can say about Atlas Shrugged Part Two, there was some great performances in this film. I thought. Sure. Okay. Well, let me uh, let me uh, just um, shovel out a few of my ideas. Um, you know, my review is going to be much more uh, exhaustive. I figure with a. Uh, a story based on a novel that's a thousand pages long. I could uh, write a lengthier review this time and nobody would notice. <laughs> and uh, so my first criticism is that um, much of the storytelling, not so much the themes or the struggles involving the political nature, the economy and the, uh, the capitalism, uh, much of the storytelling, not that uh, uh, just the delivery to me was cliche. And when I when I say cliche, I, I really like to use that word because I think the very word cliche these days has become cliche. <laughs> that, sure, that yeah. just critics like to throw it out all the time. Yep. But uh, you know how you were mentioning when you watched Casino Royale, you predicted very early on what you thought would become a Vesper. And the reason for it is that some part of you recognizes the ways in which filmmakers tell stories time and again. They go back to the same things that worked in another film, and it's just something about how it was told. But it kind of gives away the plot because you're you're thinking, hey, you know what? I've seen this done before. And, and that's how I felt about part two, that so much of it felt too familiar. I have to insert here that, that, that that's okay to some extent um, because there is a way in which you tell a story and there's a way in which you don't tell a story. And that's okay. Um, we but but you can go overboard with it. You can get really and and that's where I think the word cliche comes in handy, even though it is an overused word. Cliche doesn't indicate to me that you're using good storytelling 
technique, it indicates that you're using a way in which um, there's no surprise left, and and it's just you you expected that it was cliche. Exactly that that is it. it it's not that they did they uh, the mimicry was it was great mimicry. It was just that it was mimicry. <laughs> um, and so, and so for instance, you, you like to talk about Star Trek Second Generation a lot. And um, I'm, I will forgive you for calling it that. No, 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 no. Let me finish. Uh, it had its good moments and its bad moments. Um, I started season one and I couldn't get through it. Oh, because... no, don't ever do that if you're not a fan of Star Trek. <laughs> no. Yeah, you would, you would agree with me there. So the thing is, with Star Trek, in many ways, it is the, uh, repetition. It's familiar to us. And yet it could still excel. It, 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 what it did beyond seasons one and two, it could really do well. And, uh, and familiarity doesn't breed contempt per se. It's just uh, when it's ultimately uninteresting or not flavorful, you know, like a kicks breakfast cereal or Cheerios. <laughs> it's just that's what part two feels like to me. So somebody once uh, I've heard somebody say, I cannot remember who, that great storytelling is when you don't see how it how it's going to end, but when you get to the end, you look back and you say, there was no other way it could have gone. There was no other way. So you look back and you can see the pattern and you can see it from your vantage point now, but you didn't see it then. That's great storytelling. And I tend to agree with that. And one of the greatest examples, if I can, since, since Atlas Shrugged is based on a book, one of the greatest examples to me, some of the, some of the most well-written modern literature, I uh, hope I don't offend anybody here, is Harry Potter. And <gasps> you're right. <laughs> when when you uh, when you get to the end of book seven, I won't spoil it. I will just say when you get to the end of book seven, you look back and you go, "There was no other way it could have ended." But most of the stuff that happened in book seven, you weren't expecting. In although, most of book seven, you're sitting here going, "How in, how on earth is this going to all tie together? I don't get it. I don't understand." And I didn't, but but when you look back, it's very satisfying, and there was no other way it could have happened. That's great storytelling, and that I th- I think is what Atlas Shrugged is missing. Uh, agreed. Yeah, when it came to the ending for part two, I was just shaking my head, thinking how how can you end the film like that? <laughs> okay, sorry, but that's not even one of my complaints. I don't want to get off on that because, generally speaking, I don't like to be too specific with a film because you know most every film has something about it I don't care for in isolation. Uh, for instance, um, an example: uh, I'm a huge fan of the Toy Story trilogy. Um, I love the way they introduced Jessie, the yodeling cowgirl, in Toy Story 2. Absolutely. I thought, I thought she was just a awesome uh, fictional children's character. Just just bubbling with personality, explosive personality. And, and she was just really a clever character for this whole lineup of toys. Agreed. And then with um, part three, which, which is arguably the best of the trilogy, they... they changed Jesse in many ways. I thought that they were trying to demonstrate that she had matured, that she had progressed to a new, a new place that she had uh, accepted a new home, that she was now a part of the family of toys with Woody and Buzz. But at that time, at the same time, I, I just didn't care for how she was portrayed. She, she wasn't mm. the dancing, excited, uh, yodeling cowgirl. She was more like Raggedy Ann, and she was uh, placid. She was just uh, following the group, and when she did make things happen, they were characteristic of what she was in Toy Story 2, and when she wasn't making things happen, it was like, you're not Jesse. You're not Jesse to me. And so that's one of those details I can live with. In spite of that, I think Toy Story 3 is fantastic. Yeah, I was going to say, I can forgive you for thinking ill thoughts of Toy Story 3, I guess. And to (laughs) me, it's almost maybe the best of the trilogy. And I like all the Toy Stories, but... um, I I give them each like five stars. Oh, yeah, uh, definitely. Four and a half or five for sure on all of them. Um, and it, you know it would be fun. This is a side note here. Uh, one time, one day when we're not, uh, when a lot of films aren't coming out that we want to review, to to talk about the Toy Story trilogy. 
Yeah, or to have our children do the show for us and they can talk <laughs> about it for us. Yes, uh, I'm sure my son Alan could uh, repeat each story beat of each movie. Um, yeah, with with my daughter. That We ought to do that. That'd be fun. <laughs> yeah, get them to discuss that. Yeah, but anyway, it, what, Atlas Shrugged. What could we bribe them with? What would what would we, what could we give them that get them to talk about it on the podcast? That'd be fun. Yeah, I don't know. If I could only figure out a way to convince her, all right, I'd have all right. to probably focus, Joseph. I'd, focus, Atlas Shrugged. Okay. <laughs> uh, right. Okay, Atlas Shrugged. Well, uh, it was predictable. Yes. Yeah. So so um, then uh, you want to talk about a couple of our likes? Uh, I kind of already have. Um, no, but, yeah, that's right. Okay, well, then let me just add one other uh, like that I appreciate about part two. I pre- I can understand the political themes better than I could in part one. I, I just Definitely. Didn't, I, I didn't follow the story in part one as effectively. While I appreciated the nuance and some of the characters better, and I thought, you know, um, I found it more intriguing, and it wasn't as predictable, I just couldn't follow the story at times. And so I was kind of like, you know what? This is this is obviously challenging. They got a huge book and they're trying to condense it. So I'll just attribute it that to that this would all be better explained if I just understood the novel. If I was familiar with the novel, then I would understand this movie. And yeah, uh, maybe. With, but with I, I feel like though on that same kind of note, maybe the reason that you understand the political themes better in the second film is because the film itself was broken into a three-act structure much better than the first mm. film. Yeah, you're right. And so with uh, part two, though, yeah, the, 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 just the, the themes, what they were trying to communicate, what they did say, it made a lot more sense. And, uh, and I'm sure that must have been challenging. And uh, in Grenchu, they're doing this where they were applying this, this story that was originally written in 57 or again published then uh, they're applying it to today they yes. modernize the story and i think that they they did a good job there because i've uh, spoke to several people familiar with the novels the novel sorry keep thinking of it as three parts because it's actually broken into hu- three huge sections but um the, the people who are familiar with the novel say that these two films but especially the second one does a great homage to the original while also maintaining um just the modern quality to it yeah yeah now you you've talked more about your dislikes i think than i have and and one of my dislikes um while 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 it's also a like in that i appreciate that there were so well, there was some fallout from the affair that dagny is is having with uh reardon um yet i think that the ultimate goal and the ultimate uh thing that they're saying here is it shouldn't there shouldn't be fallout they should just be able to to do this and and dissolve you know reardon's marriage or whatever and and move on and life will be all happy and glorious so i I appreciate on the one hand that there's some fallout from that and that 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 this costs them something on the other hand knowing uh, knowing where they're taking this knowing the perspective it, it just bothers me a little bit you you do you know are you tracking with me am i making sense well, yeah, and the reason it should bother you is because you got to ask yourself, where are they getting their moral absolutes? Where did they decide that um, something pertaining to the economy and the way the business ought to be run, capitalism, the, that there are these absolutes over here where something is absolutely imperatively true, that you know the government ought to just um, leave businesses alone to succeed and they small government you know yay rah rah you know small government and all that stuff but then over here as it pertains to the family who cares if a marriage collapses you know yeah well you know uh um why do you think that the one thing matters and not the other you, you got a point there because at the end of the day uh i ayn rand was an atheist and uh she was publicly so and she uh she supported this idea of having affairs and uh, floating in and out of marriage, uh, that it really didn't matter, and so that's gonna. Uh, this story is gonna work for a lot of people who accept her worldview. Um, it's gonna work for people who just uh, gravitate towards that sort of libertinism. That that sort of um, let me pick and choose my values, mm-hmm. and that's the only thing that ultimately matters is that it's what I believe in. Yeah, and, and I guess I guess that just you know when it comes to you know the uh, 
social issues, she would tend to be more libertine, as you know, uh, or 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 as we often try to think of it today. Or a lot of people, a lot of people confuse libertarianism and libertinism. Uh, but but yes, definitely more libertine in these areas. When it, I was tracking much more closely when it came to the actual political, you know, what we would call today political stuff, uh, you know, and agreed with it so much more. So, um, one of the things I thought was a mis misstep was that uh, part two. Another reason that perhaps I I kind of just thought it didn't uh, make par was because. Part two repeated a lot of the same things that happened in part one, or at least ways it, it dragged those themes out. Situations that happened in part one didn't progress very much in part two. For instance, they find this um, motor in part one, and then they start working to get it fixed in part one. Then in part two, for the majority of the film, they're still trying to get it to work. Uh, that wouldn't be such a bad thing if other things that were going on in the story were progressing at a rapid pace. Yeah. But they weren't. The, you weren't finding out who John Galt was. Uh, Daggert and, uh, well, I mean, Taggart. <laughs> Did I say Daggert? <laughs> you're yeah. you're so, confusing Dagny and Taggart there. The, the family chemistry and the relationships going on, the Taggart family, brother and sister, Dagny and her brother, the, they really aren't progressing. They're going nowhere. Um, they're reliving similar scenarios that they had in part one. Not moving uh, the story. The, gover the government is still crunching down on the, the businesses. Yeah, everything was just kind of at a standstill, slowly getting worse you know, impending doom. Oh no, the gas prices just went from $7 to $10 to $20 to $40. Well, what does that even mean? You know, yeah. what, is it, what does that mean? Where is this all headed? You know, make some serious progression here, please. Yeah. I just didn't, I felt like a lot of the film carried a lot of the same story of part one, not a lot of progression. Well, and you know the whole the whole concept of the motor, the as we as we like to call it in sci-fi, the unobtainium. Uh, <laughs> you yes, know, um, Deus ex machina. It's, it's just not. It just wasn't working well for me. Like, like who cares about this stupid motor? Why? Why is this the answer to the world's problems? There's obviously it's going to solve nothing. <laughs> and, and, you know, and and it just seemed like a really weak plot device. At least ways the way it was told in the movie, I. I think you're right. Yeah. Yep. I don't know that this movie merits a lot more conversation. Do you? Oh, well, there was one critic I thought who said it best. I wanted to just quote him here, uh, a William Bebiani on Crave Online. Uh, he summed up a lot of my feelings here. Uh, Atlas Shrugged Part 1 failed to make its argument due to a larger failure to put together an engaging, watchable film regardless of its po politics. Atlas Shrugged Part 2 is competent enough to allow the argument to play out in front of us, giving naysayers something to actually talk about and to think about. An actual argument has been made and can be judged by its narrative merits. And while it still falls short, it treads water for most of the second act and continues to rely on oversimplifications of grander ideas. It's now kind of interesting and occasionally even involving in its pragma how did he put it that's not a word and it's flamboyance let's just say that yeah uh, so, so i yeah i think he can he really condensed it yeah you know i'm glad you you mentioned another critic because it reminded me i wanted to read a little bit from ebert's review now i i recognize ebert is a complete liberal talking about a conservative film and that's certainly coloring his perspective and he even mentions that in the review he gets it up front he says you know this <laughs> This is where I'm at. This is where the film's at. Um, but but one one paragraph here I thought was very well, and this is in regards, he hasn't written a review as far as I know for the second one yet. I kind of looked for it and haven't found it. But this is for the first one. He says, I am faced with this, and now I am faced with this movie, the most anticlimactic non-event since Geraldo Rivera broke into Al Capone's vault. I suspect <laughs> only someone very familiar with, the Ran, with Rand's 1957 novel could understand the film at all. And I doubt they will be happy with it. For the rest of us, it involves a series of business meetings in luxurious retro leather and brass boardrooms and offices and restaurants and bedrooms that looked at, looked borrowed from a hotel, no doubt known as the Robber Baron, Ar Robber Baron Arms. During these meetings, everybody drinks. 
More wine is poured and sipped in this film than at a convention of, oh dear, I don't know what this word is, Owen Felix? <laughs> what is that word? Do you know? No, I had the same problem. Maybe it's not a word. Maybe. Uh, this is what the guy put in the, his paragraph, propagandistic. Okay. Whatever this word is, my dictionary in my on my computer doesn't recognize it either. Anyway, there are conversations in English after which I sometimes found myself asking, why did they just say that? This dialogue seems to have been ripped throbbing with passion from the pages of Investor's Business Daily. Much with the excitement much of the excitement centers on the tensile strength of steel. <laughs> and and I thought I I I had the same thoughts. I mean, we're we're of one accord when it comes to this, me and Ebert. So uh I'm glad you did that. That reminded me of that. I'm going to put uh, Joseph. Make sure you send me the link for yours, and I will put uh, Roger Ebert's also for part one in the show notes. Definitely. All right, TJ. We nailed it. Atlas shrugged part two. Yeah. Now we I'm, just got to wait another year or so for part I'm, three. Yeah, I suppose. I'm shrugging as well. <sighs> Sorry, I had to go there. You've been saving that one. <laughs> I'm so funny. Uh, yes. Yes, yes. Uh, so next week, uh, we're going to talk about Cloud Atlas. And we're going to try to get uh, Stuart back on the show. And we talked about that when he did The Matrix with us, uh, which we did in anticipation of this film coming out. So Cloud Atlas, we will talk about it. We'll let you know how we feel about it, if it's any good, if it's worth seeing. Uh, we're going to talk all about Cloud Atlas. Do you, you notice the irony there? Uh, Atlas Shrugged and Cloud Atlas. I've been confusing those stupid titles all week. <laughs> what are the chances of that happening? I don't know. And I, uh, yeah, I, uh, it's been really irritating. So, anyhow, I think we should wrap it up. Joseph, uh, I know that uh, after hearing our podcast, many people will probably want to keep up with you online. Where can they do that at? I am always on Facebook and Twitter. I'm Joseph Darnell on both. So at Joseph Darnell on Twitter. And if you want to get to me at Facebook, just visit josephdarnell.com. And I have another site I write for, Movie Bite. I write reviews there. Thank you. And I also write for my own site, jivingjackalope.com. I like to talk about design, productivity, perfectionism, technology, you name it. All right. And I am on the social networks as well, Twitter and Facebook. You can find me. I am TJ Draper Pro on Twitter. I am Facebook.com slash TJ Draper. I have a website, TJDraper.com, BuzzingPixel.com, and MovieBite.com. I have several websites. You can find me, catch up with me there. Um, and uh, so that's where you can keep up with me. And yeah. you know what? Also, uh, if you enjoyed the podcast and you haven't rated this uh, show yet or written a review in iTunes, please do so. You can go to the iTunes store and search for Movie Bite, and we will come up there, and that would help us out very much. Uh, and be sure to continue checking out the Movie Bite website. We're posting stuff there every day, news and articles and reviews, so be sure to check it out. And, That'd uh, be awesome. All right. Well, Joseph, uh, I don't know what to say. I'm, I'm shrugging. So, have a you good have a evening. Have a good one, TJ. All right, you too. <laughs>